Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to this Food and Drink Federation podcast, passionate about food and drink. I'm Tim Rycroft, I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF, and I'm joined today by my boss and my friend, Ian Wright. Hello, Ian. Hi, Tim. So in the last few days, uh, since we last talked, there's been an interesting development, uh, which is the appointment of Lord Frost, David Frost, to a cabinet role as Minister of State at the Cabinet Office, reporting to Michael Gove, but with responsibility for relationships with the EU and the EU member states. Now, this is uh, uh, fascinating in itself, but also is the latest uh, unfolding of a story that's gone on for some time. Um, uh, listeners will recall that uh, David Frost, as he then was, has been our uh, lead Brexit negotiator. And then uh, in the middle of last year, he was uh, rather surprisingly appointed additionally as our national security advisor uh, in succession to Sir Mark Seddle. And that appointment was then uh, superseded um, in January. And uh, Lord Frost was instead given uh, control of a slightly nebulous uh, unit of advisors on relationships with Europe. And now, uh, most recently, as I say, in the last few days, he's been appointed a minister in the House of Lords and, as I say, in the Cabinet Office. And this is potentially, I think, very interesting as we start, start to survey our future relationship with the EU now that we're no longer a member. Um, and I would really like to explore that a bit with you, Ian. But first of all, you worked with David Frost when you worked at Diageo as Global Corporate Relations Director, and he was, for several years, Chief Executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association. So maybe you could just start by telling us uh, what kind of a person Lord Frost is. Well, David is a very, um, a very high quality uh, product of the UK's diplomatic service. So he was... Uh, ambassador to Denmark and had held a number of other important diplomatic posts uh, both in the Foreign Office and um, in a number of countries over his career. Uh, he's, I think, uh, a very thoughtful character. He's quite a quiet man, uh, by which I mean he's not demonstrative. Um, he's uh, quite sardonic. Uh, I worked with him a little bit at Diageo. I was I was there when he was appointed uh, to head the Scotch Whiskey Association, and uh, then I worked with him again later on when I arrived at the Food and Drink Federation. And about three or four years ago, just after the Brexit vote, so this would be second half of 2016, uh, we created the Trade Association Roundtable, which brought together brings together still on a weekly basis at the moment, uh, the chief executives of the trade associations across the food and drink world, both from um, individual manufacturing, uh, individual subsectors, so meat, poultry, fish, uh, frozen food and so on, and also across the beverage alcohol sector. So I've worked with David on and off over the years. We're, we have a very uh, friendly and amiable relationship. Um, he's an affable character. Uh, I think he's quite tough. I think he's uh, he's become quite a strong advocate of Brexit. He may have been that before, but it wasn't evident and no reason why it should have been. Um, he's uh, proved to be a tough negotiator. 
I think this is a good move for us, actually. Although I, um, uh, I profoundly still disagree with some of the positions he's taken, uh, I think now this is quite helpful to all those who are trying to make the, uh, the various agreements that we've reached in relation to the EU and our relationship with it, to make those relationships work. And I think that for this reason, David is the architect of the detail of many of those relationships. I mean, it has to be said that the Prime Minister himself is, is responsible for them ultimately. Um, but David is the architect. And in his previous roles, while he was very much the person sent to negotiate and agree the detail, he was never, ever accountable. And in this role, he's going to be accountable. And in fact, I said to George Eustace and Victoria Prentice, our ministers, this morning, you know, you must be relishing the opportunity now to be able to, as your constituents or your ministerial, um, uh, your ministerial clients, as it were, or those areas of business and, and industry for which you're responsible, as they say to you, this bit of the agreement doesn't work. Rather than you having to take responsibility for it, you can now say to your cabinet colleague, Oi, David, why doesn't this work? I'm getting it in the neck from my, uh, from my constituents or from industry. Come and explain it to them. And guess what? George Eustace took up the opportunity to say, yes, we'll definitely get David Frost along to come and explain it to this group of people. Now, I think we will have a productive relationship with David. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. And I think it's a good move to have, have him in the cabinet, have him responsible. He'll be uh, answerable to the House of Lords. That will be a different move and a different role for him. He'll be in front of the scenes rather than behind them. And it'll be very interesting to see how that pans out. I know that you also had a, uh, have a very good working relationship with Michael Gove, um, dating back to the time, particularly when Michael was obviously Secretary of State at DEFRA. Do you interpret these latest moves as Michael Gove moving away from Brexit and potentially moving into a different role? And if so, do you think that's something that we should... Well, I think, I think it's a bit early to be too sure what will happen um, possibly in the summer as the government possibly uh, takes fresh guard after the 21st of June and the close of the COVID restrictions, we hope. Um, Michael is, I've seen some commentary which has suggested that Michael is in some way, um, that this puts Michael's nose out of joint. Um, and I somewhat doubt that, actually. I don't think Michael will be particularly sad to lose responsibility for the probably interminable rows of, um, about the EU deal and about the Northern Ireland Protocol, though I notice that he's going to keep responsibility for the Joint Committee until the current round of uh, discussions are concluded. And I think that's a good thing because he clearly has got uh, a decent relationship with Commissioner Sefcovic and, he, and there's a reasonable prospect of those two together being able to work out something fairly practical. Um, I don't think it's ever sensible to write off the Cabinet's most talented minister. Um, whatever you think of Michael's politics and whatever you think of his, uh, of some of his other um, reputations, much of it I think unearned, uh, by which I mean uh, not fairly earned. I, I'm, a, as you know, a, a big fan of Michael. He is the best minister in the government. He's the person who is most across his brief. 
He's the person who has thought most about whatever department he's running. He, ha he will have immersed himself in the issues and the politics of the practical. Um, and he's also the government's most intelligent, uh, though often or sometimes it's most feline, communicator. And uh, I think it's impossible to imagine this government uh, could be served without him in a frontline role. I also think it's quite important to note that two of his biggest, biggest uh, colleagues and closest collaborators are now the two closest people to the Prime Minister, other than the, his Chief of Staff and the Head of the Home Civil Service. So uh, the Prime Minister's Chief Advisor, Henry Newman, and his new Deputy Chief of Staff are both extremely close collaborators of Michael Gove. So any suggestion that this is some sort of sidelining, I think, is ridiculous. I personally think Michael will probably end up uh, I think he would be well, we'd be, we'd be lucky to have him running a department, but I think it's more likely that he'll end up being responsible for an even worse uh, mess that the government's got itself into, not of his making, uh, over the relationship with Scotland and potentially the wider question of how the constitutional settlement of, with the devolved administrations is, uh, is reached over the with this government over the next few years but we'll see he'll he, he may end up running the department of health who knows turning then to the ongoing issues of trade friction following our departure from the eu at the beginning of the year which i know continues to be a source of frustration and distraction and um in some cases anger and bitterness among food and drink manufacturers i, I saw a striking metaphor this week i can't remember who, whose it was but i thought it was very apposite which was that the Brexit teething problems are in danger of turning into a permanent toothache. And I thought that was particularly uh, relevant because in some ways, of course, toothache is a relatively minor pain and yet it's incredibly distracting and hard to ignore. Um, it's, it has a particular characteristic, which is, um, I suspect, may well be the case also uh, around these trade issues. So what's your most, both your most optimistic and your least optimistic assessment of how these trade issues, trade friction that we are seeing plays out over the next few months for food and drink manufacturers? Well, I think if they're to do with the UK-EU trade, then I think we have to face the fact that these uh, that the relationship is set. Um, uh, Dominic Goody and I are, are excellent brilliant trade lead, Dominic and I, had a long meeting uh, day before yesterday with the EU ambassador. Uh, and he was very clear with us, very courtly Portuguese um, aristocrat um, and uh, very, very experienced in the ways of the Commission. He spent his entire lifetime, working lifetime, working for the Commission uh, and is one of those people that you meet who's always worked for the Commission, who is immensely impressive, uh, very clever, very thoughtful, and he's very clear. Uh, the relationship is as it is. It has been negotiated. It is what the UK chose, um, even if some of us might say that we weren't quite clear that that's what we were choosing uh, in 2016, and uh, that an, a number of different versions of what we were choosing have been offered to us since. Um, uh, and incidentally, if anybody has any interest in this, the variable uh, prescriptions that uh, we've been told we voted for 
they should read the book, What Does Jeremy Think?, which is the biography of the former head of the Civil Service and Cabinet Secretary, uh, Sir Jeremy, later, very sadly, briefly, Lord Hayward of Whitehall. Um, and detailed in that unbelievably interesting, brilliant book by his uh, wife and widow, uh, are the almost monthly variations of what the government thought the, the relationship with the EU ought to be. And it, if, you list, if you listed them all, it would be hilarious. Um, but so we have had all sorts of variations on the, on the relationship. The one we've got is the one we're going to have to live with. Some of the joint committees, which were part of the deal that the Lord, Lord Frost we were talking about just now has made and has created, uh, haven't yet been set up. I think if they're set up, there will be some ways to help some of this. The other way that's going to help us all is that everybody knows we have to solve the Northern Ireland problem. Um, the, the current pro the current relationship between the between GB and NI um, does not work, is not sustainable, and will not keep the peace. So it has to be changed. The good news about that really rather precarious and scary situation is that as it's changed, some of those changes can be retrofitted onto the UK EU settlement uh, because in some ways it'll be in everybody's interest that if 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 this works for Northern Ireland, then we can say that it is a settlement for the whole EU. Uh, everybody can preserve that particular position. And so I think we will see some movement. So I'm moderately optimistic about that. But I'm not particularly optimistic about some of the structural issues. And I think what I said from the start, and I'm sorry to sound like I told you so, but I told you so, um, it, that, that many businesses in the food and drink industry will have to re-engineer their supply chains in order to make this work. And that will mean not doing stuff that goes through the UK on the way to either Ireland or the EU, not uh, and sending stuff direct to Ireland if you're from the EU and deciding what you do about setting up in Northern Ireland if you're in GB. Because if you're in Northern Ireland, you can turn right for the Republic and the EU and left for the UK. And why wouldn't you do that? because you'll be in both, which is, of course, where most of us would have liked to be all the time. And we could have been in the customs union, we could have been in a customs partnership, we could have been in the single market, we could have been out of the single market. Uh, all of those options were available to us at the same time as we had decided irrevocably to leave the, leave the EU. And we chose not to do that. And I think we may come to regret that. But we can't change it now. Moving on um, to maybe happier themes. Uh, this week saw the launch of a new campaign to boost food and drink exports called Open Doors, uh, launched by Liz Truss, the International Trade Secretary. But uh, you and other food and drink and agriculture leaders were prominently quoted in the press release. Do you want to just say a bit about what you see as the opportunity for boosting UK food and drink exports? Yeah, I think this is an excellent initiative and it's a good way to start uh, what I hope will be a rolling programme of extra investment from the government, extra support from the Department of International Trade and DEFRA and extra focus on the UK's exporting uh, potential outside the EU. I mean, the EU will continue for a long time to come to be our largest single food and drink trading partner uh, and I think we should all welcome that. 
But as we we're just saying, the trade with the EU is going to be a significant amount more difficult and a lot more clunky. But at the same time, and this is one of the benefits of Brexit, uh, we are uh, we are now in a position where we have to get our eyes up from the immediate uh, horizon and look beyond that to other trading opportunities. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think for many years we've been a little bit uh, stuck in our in maximising our relationship with the EU. Understandably, big market, lots of sophisticated consumers. But now there's an opportunity to go further, and there are some really quite exciting prospects outside that. Uh, we've talked a lot on these podcasts about the US trade deal. I think that's a little bit further away now that the Biden administration is in harness, but not necessarily precluded. Uh, we've talked about deals with Canada and other um, and Australia. Uh, we have talked very briefly about the potential deals with India. Uh, and that's a massive market and a huge opportunity. And we haven't talked a lot about, but I think is possibly the biggest immediate opportunity, the CPTPP, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has emerged uh, over the last few months. And in some ways, actually, was a reaction to Trump uh, and the way in which Trump uh, conducted his own trade deals. Well, we have been, uh, we've made an application to join CPTPP, I think that's extremely exciting um, and it's big it's a big market uh, and it's a market where we know quite a lot of the players but not all of them particularly well as a food industry so I think that's a great opportunity I think this open doors uh, initiative gives the first clue to the fact that government is prepared to put its heft and some money where its mouth is and support food and drink exporters I hope they'll go further. I think the Trade and Agriculture Commission, when it comes with its report in a couple of weeks' time, may be uh, quite helpful in that. There will be a number of other voices raised in favour of the creation of export uh, support for England, which is missing in the current provision. There will be a number of voices raised in favour of coordinating the support as between the four parts of the kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and of course, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales all do a very good job in promoting their own food exports. We need to move forward on all of that. And I think um, I think this is a great opportunity for us to do so. Another piece of terrific news this week, of course, was on environmental sustainability, where in 2016, FDF, on behalf of its members, published some quite stretching targets on reducing CO2 emissions, on food waste, on water usage. And our interim report towards Ambition 25, 2025, published this week, shows that we've already hit some of those targets, which is extraordinary. And uh, in fact, so early have we hit them that we've set some more targets. Um, I just wanted to, to see what you thought about that. Well, I think it's extremely helpful. Uh, I, I was only recently arrived at FDF when those uh, 2016 uh, targets were set. And um, so to be able to say that they have been achieved um, is a great achievement. And I think it's a big, a, big, um, a big success for many of our members who have participated in them. I, I'm always very worried about environmental targets, which are years and years away. So I'm particularly bothered at the moment about the debate over net zero and as to whether it should be in 2040 and 2050. Because it's my experience, particularly working with very 
big companies and the leaders of very big companies who sometimes think of themselves as um, somewhat apart from us ordinary mortals, that they have a bit of a habit of setting uh, a target for their business, which is so far away that nobody who's currently in the business, unless they actually own it, could possibly still be there. Um, and when it's when the target is met, or indeed when it's due to be met. So I think that we've managed to, with these targets, do something quite remarkable, which is to set a stretching environmental target, which we've actually achieved. I hope we will take that very important lesson into setting our targets for the net zero uh, round of, of work, which we're about to start on. And clearly, that's going to be a major focus for the second half of the year and going forward. So I hope we are realistic in our target setting. Um, and uh, that is, in my view, a, a bigger contribution to environmental protection and the sustainability of our production processes and indeed of our global operating environment than anything else we could do. So set targets which we believe are stretching but achievable and which we will take personal responsibility for achieving. Terrific. So finally, uh, in the last few days, of course, we've had the uh, Prime Minister's roadmap to unlocking the lockdown, uh, a roadmap which I suspect our members mostly feel is rather longer and slower than they'd hoped for, particularly vis-a-vis -vis reopening of hospitality, which of course is very important to food and drink. But I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about your response to the roadmap and what you think uh, food and drink manufacturers should be doing about it. Well, I've been quite critical of the Prime Minister and his advisors. I do think that, that this is excessively conservative and dangerously so in many ways. Um, I also think it's disrespectful to all business, not simply to food and drink, that the, the targets and the dates should be set and the uh, damage to business should be delivered without any kind of uh, supporting mechanism for the way in which the government intends to help business through this, except some pretty soapy warm words from the Prime Minister. It's disrespectful. There will be businesses uh, in that eight-day period uh, which will have decided to close because they simply have run out of cash and they can't wait around for the Chancellor to come to the rescue. And I know that that view is also shared by other very uh, significant business associations. I was talking to a number of people under the auspices of the CBI today and we all agree that it is extremely regrettable that the government has chosen to be so disrespectful to business and to individual businesses. Um, nevertheless, I do think the help will arrive uh, but you can't cash that today and you have to know you're going to have that help in order to agree that you will continue to trade. Um, more positively, I think that, that this is at least a map out of, uh, out of the, the very difficult circumstances we've been, albeit, as I say, I think one way of the passengers, the population, if it is a roadmap, the population is going to spend quite a lot of the journey saying, are we nearly there yet? Uh, and I think that's not, not going to be conducive to the government's uh, comfort. There are two areas that I think I would, I would like to highlight. One is I think we need a lot more detail on the reopening of offices and going back to work. And I haven't seen any detail yet on the public transport provision that will support people going back to work. And I think we need to see that very urgently so that we can be sure that when we aim to reopen offices, 
as I think we must, uh, and as I know many, many members wish to do, albeit in a flexible opening and a flexible operating environment, we need to know that the public transport will be there to allow that to happen. We also need to know a lot more about testing. Now, there's been a lot of talk about vaccination certificates and vaccination passports as a way of reopening the economy. I, I personally am a supporter of vaccination passports. I think they're inevitable. I, I, I understand the civil liberties concerns, but the truth is that pretty quickly, independent operators of clubs, bars, outdoor venues, indoor venues, sporting facilities, all sorts of places are going to want to see that the people that they're letting in have either been tested that day or, and are negative, or have uh, had the vaccination. And that will give sufficient assurance to them to allow people in. And I think, and we've already been deluged with requests for support for different mechanisms for offering vaccine passports. Actually, the NHS Track and Trace app already has one because your test certificate is on it and you can put your vaccine certificate on it. So I think we will see that and the government is going to have to make a choice about whether it delivers that, that process or whether it allows private providers to do it. It may do so with those who provide the appointments and prescriptions online that, that we all use. But that's going to be the next debate. And I'd be very interested to hear from member companies if they have a view on vaccine passports or indeed on anything else we've said here today, Tim. Uh, something that I really relish is hearing from our members. They're very forthright in their views about what we're doing um, and about what we're not doing. Um, and indeed, I know that some have views on our new website, which we think is quite exciting, but I know has had some uh, concerns and some difficulties. And so, uh, as, in, as with any IT project, so what I would do is encourage all our members and all my friends uh, amongst them to email me with anything that they think we should be addressing. And my address is tim.rycroft at fdf.org.uk. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from them. Another masterclass in leadership from Ian Wright. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us and we will see you again soon. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.